Smartcast. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to Experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. Wall Street. I went to Wall Street to get seriously rich, but I didn't get rich. Hollywood Boulevard. I went to Hollywood to be a movie mogul. I didn't become a movie mogul. Washington, D.C. The president and Mrs. Ford have invited us down to Palm Springs. He's been but there. I love the entertainment business. Done and that. Being hired by a company called Carroll Co. Pictures. And that. Was the night before Ronald Reagan was inaugurated. And just about everything else you can imagine. I thought of myself as somebody who was a double agent. He knew a lot of famous My people. experience with Orson Welles. How can you possibly? We hang out with that low-life Frank Sinatra. And now he's As talking. Because of that, I was invited to some fancy dinner. This is the podcast, Who the F*** is Roger Smith? But my real goal was to have an interesting life surrounded by interesting people. And at that, I succeeded beyond my expectations. On this episode, Roger is part of a very rare thing, a failure from Steven Spielberg. Because of his relationship with Spielberg, sets up a meeting with the head of Atari, to hash out a deal to make the E.T. video game and ends up paying $25 million for the rights to make the game. Well, the people at Atari said, look, it's a nice name, but we don't know how to make a game out of it. But first, in the entertainment business, Roger says if you have an opinion, keep it to yourself. One executive who didn't learned it comes at a cost. Who was he? And why was he shown the door by Roger's boss? Well, only in Hollywood can you be... Fired for showing excessive ability. Michael Fuchs, who had commanded HBO in its glory days from, I think, roughly 1980 to 1990 or early 90s, enough to be responsible for both The Sopranos and Sex in the City. But he was somebody who made it very clear that he thought he was entitled to what he got because he had really produced for them, and he also wanted the ability to not have non-creative types interfere with him. And there's really three levels. There's the, the actual creators, there's the pure business people, and there's the really the people I admire and aspire to as being business people who understand the creative process and the creative mind. And I had a very good mentor in this in Steve Ross, because he, he really did. He was considered overly indulgent, but I promise you the talent didn't look at it that way. <laughs> and Steve Ross had good taste? Well, he would go into a movie and come out and you guys would agree or not? No, it was a little complicated. Steve never expressed an opinion on anything prior to its release. He didn't want to impose his taste. His taste was very middle of the road market 
uh, friendly kind of taste. It wasn't exotic or unlike me, think that Grand Illusion was the best movie ever made. So uh, he was very circumspect of this because he was the boss. Interestingly, you were never allowed to call him boss. He hated that term. He, he saw its slightly mafia tinge and then said, and in fact, he was somebody who, the most profound thing I think he ever said to me was, I had gone to him this late in my career there, so we're now in the mid 80s. And I said, Steve, are you aware that one of your executives is plotting to take over the company and take it away from you? And he said, Roger, of course I'm aware. Don't you think I would know that? I said, well, what are you going to do about it? He said, absolutely nothing. The man is very able. He said, I know I can keep an eye on him and make sure he doesn't go too far. But he said, what I don't want is, is loyalty. Okay. He said, I don't care about loyalty. He said, I, don't, I need ability. He said, it doesn't need to be loyal. I, I, I trust myself to know where uh, I can rein in people if it becomes necessary. And so when you hear people like Donald Trump or other mafia leaders <laughs> say that they value loyalty, what they mean is they value obedience. That's what they like. And it takes a very strong person to not feel the need for that. Um, what's a movie he got right and what's a movie he okay. got wrong? Well, the movie he got most spectacularly wrong, and it's a great story. As I said, he didn't impose his creative decision, but every December was the annual Warner Brothers uh, budget meetings where they would come to corporate and lay out the plans for the year and talk about each project and so forth. And Steve at the end of it would say, look, I know what you tell me every year, but I'm gonna say it once again. Why couldn't we remake An Affair to Remember, the Cary Grant, Deborah Carr movie that was... This was a cause celeb of his every year? This he was, was his like... favorite Schmaltzheimer film. He loved the movie. It was, And they would explain to him, Steve, in the modern era, if two people, who, one of whom is married, one of whom is otherwise engaged, meet, they don't wait years to get together. They break off and they go to get together. They just, the whole thing doesn't make sense in the modern world. He said, look, I'm, I think you're wrong. Well, Steve died in 1992, not, not quite 30 years ago, amazing you realize. And Warren Beatty and Bob Daly were talking after the funeral. We had one big funeral at Carnegie Hall and I went to and then another one at the studio on the soundstage that I was also at. And they said, you know, why don't we honor Steve by trying to remake An Affair to Remember? You know, it's a great idea. And Warren says, I'll produce it. I'll, I'll be the star in the Cary Grant role, et cetera. He got Katherine Hepburn to play what had been in the original, and this for real movie buffs, the Maria Uspenskaya role. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't remember Maria Uspenskaya, but I remember Catherine right. Hepburn, <laughs> yes. and I remember that uh, she could get one or two lines out before they had to cut to another take, and it was almost criminal to watch her, but he definitely wooed her out of retirement to be yes. in that film. Yeah, he did. And um, I'm trying to remember, was Annette Benning? And Annette Benning, Annette Benning was the, Annette Benning, his yes, then was, wife, was, I guess. Right, or, was the in the Deborah Kerr uh, car yeah. part. In any case, 
it was remade as Love Affair, right. which was the original title of the predecessor movie. Affair to Remember was a remake of a Leo McCary movie from the 1930s called Love Affair. And they released it under Love Affair. And it was, for a time, probably since Eclipse, the biggest money loser in the history of Warner Brothers. Wow. It was a total total failure on no, I remember that. $75 million. And they, had, and they had Bob Town do the script, so they, yeah. we, they, were, they were going first class all the way. But so it proved that... Bob Town, for people who don't know, was Chinatown, was uh, all, all kinds of great, great, and also great a punch-up guy that you would bring right. in yeah. and say, you know, help us with Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Yeah. or right. right. So... Okay. Okay. So that was that was the story of Steve's one time at, at trying to impose, and he never imposed it. He always just sort of gently suggested it, and out of a misplaced sense of affection for him, because he was genuinely loved by the people who worked for him. If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. Life is hard, but finding a really great podcast makes the days go by so much easier. Hi, my name is Blue Toulousma. I'm a writer, an emotional intelligence coach, and the host of Humanize with Blue Toulousma, a podcast where we believe that when you humanize everyone in the room, a great conversation is almost guaranteed. Join us every week here on Electricast as me and my guest co-hosts unpack big topics and interview even bigger personalities with a sense of humor and a dash of mischief. If you're looking for a new best friend in your head, we've got you covered. Electric acid. Was there a, a was something he pushed that was that we thought wasn't going to be a hit and turned out to be something well, big? Well, the other thing where he involved himself in the creative process, and this is going to people are going to say, why are you so fond of this guy? <laughs> um, he became very good friends with Steven Spielberg, and I was at one point. Uh, I, one of my jobs was PR for Warner, and I had to meet with. Tony Schwartz, a writer who's since become famous as the ghost writer of The Art of the Deal for Donald Trump. In any case, Steve had, had this relationship, and when Tony Schwartz was assigned by, at first, the New York Times to do an in-depth article on a real major piece on, as a cover story for the Times Magazine on Warner and Steve, I was thrilled because we had been getting some negative publicity on various fronts. And I thought this was a great opportunity as it happened. And I said to Steve, I said, look, I've kept you away from the press for the last two years, basically. I just I make up excuses as to why you're too busy, whatever. Tony Schwartz is somebody just totally in love with celebrities and, 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 the, and the glittery life. You're gonna seduce him and he's gonna write the piece we want. And I said, I have an idea. You're going to have a problem with this, but invite him to your house in East Hampton for the weekend. He said, what? I said, invite him to the house. Your next door neighbor is Steven Spielberg. It's, uh, he could drop in, et cetera. It could... He ends up writing such a favorable piece that the Times refuses to run it. 
says, we don't do puff pieces. I thought, wow, I did my job just right. <laughs> At which point he then shops it to New York Magazine and says, do I have your permission, Warner's permission to make this a New York Magazine piece? I said, well, it's not the New York Times, but yeah, no, why not? At one point in, the, in doing the work on this, Tony Schwartz quite perceptively says, look, I understand why Steve Ross wants to be friends with Steven Spielberg. That's, that's obvious. Tell me exactly what it is that Steven Spielberg wants from Steve Ross. I said, oh, don't you know? He needs someone to tell him how to spend his money. He's got huge amounts of money all of a sudden, and Steve is very good at spending money. Well, as soon as I said it, I realized, oh, what have I done? And I next day called Tony and said, look, you've got to let me take it off the record. You've got to let me take it back. He said, no deal. Forget it. You said it. I got it. It's, it's a quote. Yeah. I said, Tony, if that gets printed that way, I will simply be fired. You know, to screw with his relationship with Steven Spielberg on both a personal and business level is, is, a, is a firing offense. He kept it uh, back and took it out, so I'm glad oh. to say. Yeah, yeah. He was really, and the piece was positive? And oh, just the piece, like was, the piece was, was just time. exactly right. It was like... Because uh, yeah. the editors at New York can get uh, a little pissy and a little like... An, they, they can go for the blood. They, yes, they but can. But this was still this, a nice this, piece. This was, yes, yeah. Um, I think the, the fact that it was a contrarian piece while being nice made it okay with the editors because it wasn't simply going with the crowd. And anyway, that point when it came out was 1982, and Spielberg had just released E.T., which was one of the massive hits of all time, and he and Steve got the idea together that Atari should make a video game out of E.T. Uh -oh. And this was, again, Steve had been very hands-off in the management of Atari. It wasn't his baby. Uh, it was a guy named Manny Gerard who was really overseeing it. And nonetheless, because of his relationship with Spielberg, sets up a meeting with the head of Atari, with Manny there, with Sid Scheinberg, uh, and to hash out a deal to make the E.T. The, the e video game and ends up committing Warner to paying, paying $25 million for the rights to make the game. Well, the people at Atari said, look, it's a nice name, but we don't know how to make a game out of it. And, and besides, it's April and you've promised to have it in the stores for Christmas. That isn't how it works in this business. It's, it takes much longer, et cetera. What's the idea of the game? You phone home? I don't remember, and I, you know why? I can't imagine what the... Nobody, nobody ever played it. It was so bad that everybody said it was the worst game ever, and there was a famous moment where several container loads of E.T. cartridges were dumped into the desert in Arizona as landfill. So that's, that's how well it did. <laughs> and the Atari people were right in trying to stop Steve from... But this was a higher power being exerted on behalf of Spielberg. In any case, he rarely, rarely inserted himself into the creative process. And the couple of times I've cited were ones where he was spectacularly unsuccessful. But I think that uh, there are others, if I give it a little thought, I can come up with where he made it. There was a lack defense. of a track record there, we could yeah, say. Yes, yeah. yes. 
but it was in service of a very good principle, which is you let the creative people alone, let them do what they want. And then he once defined the industry as levels of craziness. He said, the talent's crazy. Not, they're never going to take a, a rational business point of view. That's not their job. The people at the studio or the, or the record labels, who, the executives there, they have to be half crazy because they got to be able to deal with the crazy talent and not get thrown by it. So the Ahmed Erdogan's and, and the uh, uh, Ted Ashley's, et cetera, knew, and the John Kelly's knew how to deal with really talented people. And they said, now we at corporate, we have to be 10% crazy because we got to deal with the, the half crazy talent, the executives running the divisions. So that was kind of, I thought, a very useful way of looking at the business. Well, just to put a button on that, sure. $25 million was the happy ending that Stephen got from his neighbor, Steve Ross, because he did sell him a game. Well, first of all, the $25 million went to Universal, which probably, poor Stephen probably only got half of it himself. <laughs> but the loss for Atari was hundreds of millions of dollars. They had to make the game, ship it, take the returns back, and suffer. It became the moment when that game failed was the moment when the entire floor fell out of the video game business. In fact, I remember we got the news that Atari was going to report its first ever bad quarter and, and a break even instead of a hundred million of profit. And I said at the meeting, I said, December 6th, 1982, a date will, that will live in infamy. <laughs> no one appreciated my humor, I promise you. If none of his stories were about you, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Who the Fuck is Roger Smith is recorded in an undisclosed bunker somewhere on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. All opinions are Mr. Smith's own, but everything he says happened because he was there. Bill Bergoli is our producer and editor. I'm Bill McCuddy. Electric Acid. Welcome to the Candle Power Hour. Come with us backstage, behind the scenes of show business spanning over four decades and bringing you the experiences that can only be told by the people who were there. Our guests are from the A-list, the F-list, and everyone in between. Get set for some of the most insane, hilarious, and inspiring stories you will ever hear. I'm Mercury. And I'm Diego. Your host for The, the Candle, Candle Power, Power Hour. Hour. Electric acid.